Next panel, panel number nine, will be on angel investors and angel investor club terms. Angel, uh, obviously we are the family office club, uh, but the angel investors are really special because they help a lot of companies get to that next stage, get to that next stage where they can start to really look for some venture capital and start to really talk with the major family offices. So we're really gonna deep dive right now uh, into what these angel investors are looking for the type of investment opportunities that they're sourcing, how they're structuring those deals, how they're negotiating those deals, and how they're supporting companies through the growth process as they start to improve these companies' operations and start to really allocate their capital. Today's moderator is a local Floridian, South Floridian, Thomas Ross, uh, who is an angel investor himself and runs an... Uh, Angel Investment Club out of West Palm Beach. Uh, so if we can please give a round of applause to our ninth panel of the day and Thomas Ross, our panel moderator today. Thank you. Is there an angel in the house? Raise your hand if you're an angel. All right, we're talking about angels today. And by the way, Christmas is almost here, so uh, listen to your angels. Uh, let me give you a quick background on, on myself. Tom Ross, I've been, I'm the president of the Palm Beach Business Group and also we're setting up a Karitsu uh, panel, uh, chapter in Palm Beach. Uh, I've also lived overseas 18 years, mostly in the Middle East and Africa, and I'm quite involved in some very interesting African opportunities because we're, we're determined to try to help American companies compete with the Chinese, which are eating up everybody's lunch in, uh, in Africa. So we're working on situations that are basically using the commodities which are so prevalent in uh, Africa to back the governments and, and back their currencies. Uh, it's an enterprising um, inve in investment opportunity, but at the same time challenging to uh, help them grow their economies. Uh, the Palm Beach Business Group I took over about 10 years ago and it's a uh, business development company in the town of Palm Beach. We have regular meetings. And part, part of what we do is help early stage companies raise capital. Uh, so, um, but what I want to talk about predominantly today and, uh, is obviously the angel investing and, and what is involved in that. This morning we had a very interesting um, demonstration of how you can start your presentation with a single sentence that tries to give the, your message quickly. So let me read the, what I wrote down for our message as Karitsu for uh, today. I'm saying that Karitsu has 54 international chapters designed to provide highly vetted angel investment opportunities to its high net worth members. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Karitsu? It's been around for quite a while, quite a few of you. Uh, to be a member of Kritsu, you have to be an accredited investor, uh, and it costs $3,000 a year to be, belong. Uh, and so we're recruiting members for the Palm Beach, uh, just starting. Uh, Holland and Knight is our, is our host, uh, so we've got a very strong legal group uh, with us as well. So, uh, enough about Kritsu, as I say, 50-some chapters specifically for round late A and B, not startup typically. Sometimes a startup, but that would be rare. Mostly uh, looking at the opportunity at, at the next second stage. 
Now, what I'd like to ask the, the uh, panel is if we're looking at uh, venture capital versus angel investment, how would you determine the difference and explain to the audience why you think one is better than the other or whatever? Bill Pod from uh, Landmark uh, Angel Group and Family Office Group. We have a, we have a, I'm going to get to your question in one second, yeah. but just well, give it. Yeah, please do the introduction sure. first, and then we'll, we'll get back to the question. Yeah, for the rest of these guys. So we're a 300 member investor group. Of that group, we have a large number of family offices at 140. Uh, we've invested over 300 million to date. Um, and we, uh, for family office and other investors, we do not charge uh, fees. So that's the big advantage. Uh, uh, of our group, one of the big advantages of our group. We're across the board in the multiple venture sectors that we invest in. Um, and um, for more information about us, you can go to landmarkangels.com. I'll repeat, landmarkangels.com, because that way we don't need to, you can get all the information you want there. We do about 14 forms a year. Now, to get over to uh, Tom's question is uh, venture capital versus uh, angel capital, what's the difference? Uh, difference is, uh, for, the, for the entrepreneurs out there, is difference in how much you want to retain in your company. Big, big advantage goes to the angel side. So, so one angel is zero VC. At what stage do we invest at as an angel group? We invest early and maybe we can go into growth. VCs, for the most part, growth to later stage, okay, keep a score. Angels two, VCs zero. So those are, the, those are the two big advantages of why you want to go there. And, and th so really, if it's early stage capital you're looking for, it's there. Now the difference is between the two groups, the, the obviously VCs can put in more capital per se over time, especially later stage, whereas the angels have to form syndicates. The key there, syndicates, just as family office forming syndicates, angels must form syndicates. And what we do right in the middle there, the family offices transition because the amounts they can invest one to two million early between the VCs who put in larger amounts and typical angel groups statistically 25,000 per angel investor and about 250,000 per investor group we do our average is 2.4 million and the median is 955. Charles introduce yourself and then by the way I have asked them to sit in the order that they are listed in your program so if you're making notes you know who it is you're talking to. Charles? Um, <clears throat> Good afternoon, Charlie Sidman. I am completely devoted to very early stage entrepreneurial finance. Um, I'm on a panel about angel investing, and I am an angel investor, but I am also a family office and a fund manager and a crowd funder and a public market person. Early stage entrepreneurial finance is my focus. So in answer to Tom's question, what's the difference between angels and VCs? I'm going to give a different opinion, we can discuss it. Angels invest their own money, VCs invest other people's money, that's it. There are early stage VCs, there are angels who can take an entire round or buy an entire company. So that's the difference in my opinion. Manuel? Hi, so my name is Manuel Barroso. Um, uh, I actually built a couple companies in Latin America grossing over $100 million in sale, became an angel investor. And I'm pretty much on the same page as you are. Um, I think there's a, that's a big difference. I mean, I'm talking to a lot of VCs in Silicon Valley, Latin America, China. And another big difference is, as angels, 
that have built companies, you understand how to build companies. So you can add not only your own money or other people's money in case you're doing a syndicate or a group, but actually you can add a lot of expertise. And, and most of the expertise is towards value creation on the entrepreneur side, right? Uh, a lot of VCs, as he said, are managing other people's money, not necessarily understanding how to scale companies, how to grow companies, how to create co corporate governance, especially in emerging markets. Uh, and that's where actually angels come on board. Eddie Liu. Hi, Eddie Liu. And I'm a serial entrepreneur, started four companies, and also been an investor in three times. And I spent some time at OCA Ventures as a partner at a, as an early stage venture capital firm. I started a company called ShiftGig, which is a going concern, which is a tech company in Chicago. We raised 59 million in venture capital. And, and in the last two years, I've been an angel investor. I, I've invested in 17 early stage tech companies, my own balance sheet. And I'm also an EIR at Valor Equity, which is in fund four, which is a, it's a billion dollar growth equity shop. So I do later stage investments as well. As it relates to angel versus VC, I agree with the other, my other gentleman. The one thing I would add though is most angel groups don't necessarily have the same access that some VCs do. And I totally agree that angels don't have in the syndicate dry powder that VCs typically have. And, but for most people seeking angel deals, you have to invest earlier if you want access into a deal. Once it gets to the VC stage, there's a good chance that angels can't get back in, in the game. Peter? Yes. Hi, my name is Peter Zhao. I'm director of China Canada Angels Alliance. Uh, we started making angel investments in North America since 2015. Uh, currently, we have uh, about uh, 40 portfolio companies so far. Uh, we also take our portfolio companies to China uh, for two weeks program to train them how to do business in China, uh, how to protect your IP in China, how to uh, 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 talk to uh, investors in China. Uh, so that's um, my background. Uh, to answer the question, well, uh, I don't want to sound like uh, angel versus uh, VC, like we angels are better uh, or vice versa. Uh, it's just uh, uh, we are angels, we are early, very early backers of those entrepreneurs. Uh, in Canada, you know, we, we work with uh, uh, Ontario Center of Excellence, which is a government body, provides government grants to uh, early stage research projects. At that very early stage, you know, we were coming in and making investment. And that's not uh, uh, VC would do. All right. And Daniel uh, Bulov. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. So my name is Daniel Bulhoff. You'll soon uh, be able to tell by my German accent where I'm from. So Germany, Berlin is where I started my first companies. And um, I started in 2006, started in the gaming space, ventured out into e-commerce, consumer internet, um, and you know, came to America in 2015 after I've started and failed with one of my companies in America the first time, brought the second, and it went pretty, pretty well and started. Uh, out of this success, building an angel syndicate that was just mentioned with some friends uh, where we decided, hey, we'd like to help other entrepreneurs. So we founded Spring Tech Partners. We solely focus on companies based in Berlin, Miami, early also in New York. Uh, usually only things we fully understand uh, where we feel like we could almost run them ourselves, but there's always better people out there. We're the first money usually in. Try to already put, uh, foresee where the next money is coming from. Uh, usually try to bring it to our a group of investors over the past years that we've built up relationships with. And in terms of adding, because a lot was already said, I think one big difference uh, is the access to run a good due diligence for angels. I mean, usually 
uh, you lack the resources to run deep, deep analysis, so it becomes much more of a person, team, investment kind of situation. You've got to trust the team you're investing into. Um, however, here in Miami, for example, I'm part of Miami Angels, and they do a great job of doing due diligence for angel investors and helping along this process for, for angels, specifically in South Florida. Yeah. yeah, just one quick add-on to what we just all said is, we, I forgot about this, it's, it's access. If you're going to a VC or an early stage company and going to VC, the chance of getting funding from those VCs, I've had a many, very many panels with VCs, but you have to look at how many deals per year they're actually doing. And they may do on average somewhere between one to three deals per year. Think about that. One to three deals per year and you have to thread that needle to get in there. Whereas if you've got a, especially a local angel group from where you are, you at least get that access in to the investors who can fund your company. Very good point. Uh, let's talk about due diligence. Obviously the key to a successful outcome of any investment is your due diligence. But what is it that is most important to you in the due diligence that you're doing? Is it the management? Is it the finances? Is it the structure of the deal? What is it, the industry? What is it that's most important, Bill? Okay, uh, the most important's hard because you name pretty much all four we look at. So we'll say all of the above. Uh, and, and the difference, I think, is, is this. Um, we look at one other factor, right? All the factors you just pointed out, team, Access, board of directors, access to customers and exit. Exit's very important. Who has the relationships the exit? Serial entrepreneur because they've been there, done that, done that before. Revenue, very important on the revenue side. And strategic partners, strategic meaning in the sense of uh, uh, who are, is involved in the deal from that can validate the underlying technology. So we look at all those as referrals. The most important point I think is for us is stability. Stability and scale. Do we think that company is going to be there for all the factors we just went over and others three years from now, right? And, and why is that? What's this, why is a three-year test important? Because it can scale during that time how we think it's going to scale based on the current factors that we have. And the real reason? Retention of principle, meaning in a company like I described, if they, if they are in business in three years, we have many fewer write-offs. The, the VCs write off 80% of their deals. They have a four or five hundred out five or four or five hundred million dollar fund to make up the difference. We don't have that. The average investor, three to four deals per year. If you've got three or four or five negatives in a row, guess what happens to your return? You've got to get a huge amount just to get to back where you started. That's the difference. Charlie? Um, I also agree with the all of the above answer. Uh, but what, what I would like to add is the aspect which I think is going to be the hardest to automate or uh, outsource to AI, and that is the human beings that we're dealing with. The having coffee, having dinner, looking them in the eye, having conversation. I don't know how to automate that. And I'll make it even uh, stronger. We can do all the work, we can write the first check, and we still don't have the full story. So that's why my personal investment philosophy is a multi-stage. Once I've written a check and we are in the same family, then we're learning much more about each other and we're really authorizing or legitimizing the second or the third check when it's warranted. We cannot get all the information before the first check. Well, um, uh, same page, I would add Latin America and now here in the US, it's all about, there are no laws actually for building companies, especially tech companies. So you really need to understand the guy you're gonna work with, the entrepreneur, I come very early stages where there's no even revenue, but there's a great guy that might be a great jockey and he might pull it off. 
Um, so it's always about him at the beginning. And from that, integrity is the first number, you know, the first thing I look at. There are multiple stages of conversations, meetings that you have to do in order to invest. And if everything falls through, then you, you, know, you probably have a, a good bet. The number one I think that I look at in diligence is the founder. If the founder doesn't want to spend time with me and wants to like shoo me off to his financial consultant, I'm probably not in that deal. I, I look at early stage companies, uh, typically with big markets, but it's unproven product. And so you're making a big bet on the founder or founding team. And, but I'm okay with the pre-revenue company. Like this, I'm about to make an investment in a company in, in Asia, but the founders had three successful sales before. And so I'm okay to back it because of the founder. And I made an investment with a guy who's taken two companies public, and I'm okay to, bet, to back it because of the founder. I did some diligence as well, but so much of it is the person, and especially early stage tech investing. So uh, all the portfolio companies that we invested, they're all pre-revenue companies at that time. So uh, a team is very important. Uh, we're looking at, especially for a very early stage company, whether you can commercialize your product in uh, the time that you, you think you can do. So I, I look at their milestones of their technology development, the, the, the timeline are very, in very details and, and making sure they can hit their timelines. Um, but as the company grow, uh, I will look more uh, into their growth strategies uh, so that, you know, because a lot of people that have similar technology or similar ideas, but how you can stand out, how you can be unique. So those are the things I'm looking for. I have to um, follow Eddie and Peter. So for, at our stage, we write small checks, 25 to 100,000. It's, it's all about the team. It's all about the founder. Uh, most importantly, usually, is where does this referral come from? We, you know, we want to know who you know. We want to uh, somehow get the first vouching for this person. Um, and, um, you know, that, that's the big bet we're taking. What about the industries that you f feel are, are most attractive now and will be in the next year? Or of course, when you're talking angel investing, you look two, three, four, five years down the line. Give me an indication of what you feel would be most attractive in today's world in the uh, angels uh, forum. The, uh, probably the, the areas that are coming up, um, I think in the healthcare space, we do a lot of investing, Tom. The, it's across the board, but we're looking for new areas of investment. So genomics, proteomics, basically we, the, the new areas, wearables, for example, on the device side, things that are gonna be integrated with the whole body where you can see changes that are occurring rapidly before the end of the disease state. So we're gonna bring those way up to personalized medicine way up front. On the energy space, a lot in the renewables, renewable space, we do clean tech, green tech, uh, and, and the traditional renewables, wind, wave, water, solar. Um, and I think the other new areas that may be new for us, but ones we're really focusing on are AI and robotics. Robotics can be a huge shift in the marketplace. It is already. We're going to see more, believe it or not, humanoids, which are basically intelligence. We're going to be able to, we won't have to go to these meetings anymore. Our humanoid will be out here doing for us. So it's not just logistics side of robotics, but the humanoid side, which is vastly coming up. Uh, you'll see that movement occurring. And artificial intelligence, the last one, Artif AI. AI is just about every place, even in data integration, et cetera. You're seeing a lot heavily, uh, more heavily involvement of AI in the category. Um, I, I would agree that the opportunities for the greatest return are technology-based. 
And so I do a lot of things in the health field also, like Bill, um, energy, sustainability, etc. But I would also like to throw out that in line with the last panel, I feel a very um, great mandate or imperative for impact and moral or ethical considerations. And some of the things that you can make a great deal of money about on short term may not make the world a better place. So that's my second um, criterion. I want to make the world a better place while earning the best return. So here in the US, I'm very focused on dental industry. It's a $200 billion market, very untapped. Um, second, in robot auto, um, software automation, um, I think that's huge. Um, and uh, third, space. And in Latin America, it's huge opportunities for arbitrage in many, many industries. That's my focus. So, so I don't have a focus. I would echo several of the industries these gentlemen had mentioned. And one different one is real estate technology. And real estate in the U.S. is still done the same ways it's been done for the last 30 years. When I've sold my place, the last couple of times I pay 6% to agents who don't even show me the place anymore. I go get a lockbox key. So there's probably lots of opportunities to huge verticals, the biggest asset that everyone owns. And so I'm looking at that space a lot. Okay, my focus is pretty unique. So I'm looking for technology that can solve a big problem uh, in China, which is the fast aging population problem. This one big problem will, will create uh, several problems. One is uh, we don't ha in China we don't have cheap labor anymore. So I'm looking for advanced, advanced manufacturing technologies. The other problem we have is uh, we don't have clean sky anymore <laughs> because of the population. So we, we need clean tech technologies. Uh, we have old, more elder people, which means we need healthcare. So we're looking at medita medical device. Uh, uh, we need uh, more value-added products. Which that's why we are investing in advanced materials. So this is the focus. And I'd like to give it a different spin to this question because, you know, thinking about how we feel about getting good ROI is usually mainly driven by, we, we believe the companies we've invested in, we can really, really help so hands-on that we really know maybe who's going to acquire them, that we can make those introductions. Um, so we are really basically agnostic, but we only invest in things that we've done before, gaming, consumer, said like I mentioned in the beginning, but for angel investors in general, um, you know, foreseeing if prop tech is going to be the next big thing, uh, some people believe that now, and I, I'm not there to prove them right or wrong, I'm just saying I don't understand enough about it to, to go down this path, because I don't think I can create enough value, and that's from an angel perspective, I would always try to do something where I can create the most value for the founders long term. I'm going to reverse the order now and start with you, Dan. Um, you may have already partially answered my question, but the question is, would you how would you evaluate U.S. investments compared to foreign investments? And if you're looking foreign, would you look at emerging markets or predominantly China, Japan, and so on? I mean, uh, or Europe under the current circumstances? Like for, for, my, for our little group, it, it's very easy. Like I said, we only look at Miami and Berlin. Simply, that's where we have the biggest network. That's where we you know, we know we can help if you're in e-commerce. We, we can make all the introductions in the space. We know which banks, which brokers have looked at this. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I wouldn't be sitting here and say, hey, you should look into emerging markets because I simply don't know enough. And learned one thing, if I don't know it, I shouldn't give an answer. Yes, yeah. yeah, so 
we uh, right now we only invest in Canada, but we would like to, you know, invest in the U.S. too. Uh, that's why I'm here, uh, looking for co-investment opportunities. We work with uh, uh, government uh, officials providing grants. Uh, we work with uh, universities, hospitals a lot, so that we can have the early access of those uh, research projects. Eddie. Most of my investments are in Chicago because my network is in Chicago. As an early stage investor, I like to be able to be to value add and help them with talent. And so I can help them with talent in a, in a, in a city where, where I'm based. And in the cases where I've invested overseas, I've gotten to know the entrepreneur through some of my network and I'm making a big bet on the entrepreneur. So most of my investments are anywhere where I see a great entrepreneur here in the US or in Latin America, it's all about that guy. It's about that guy putting a lot of growth hacking techniques so he can actually grow faster, leaner, um, and untangle value by the networks that I have access to. I think it's very important. Um, I work all over the world, so I'm unlike many of my angel colleagues. Uh, and I have noticed a few salient differences evaluating opportunities in different parts of the world. So one model is where there's a great deal of invention and IP generation, um, that's one kind of investment. Another model or pattern is in areas which have huge potential, huge op, um, economic or advancement underway, they typically have opportunities where best-in-class discoveries are being adapted to local cultures and conditions. So two very different situations and then some, some areas have both of those. Our investments are across, uh, mostly in the U.S. Uh, we have um, several in the U.K. and France. Uh, we've done one in uh, New Zealand and one in Australia, and we've, we're looking at a couple in Japan. Um, difference being, U.S. is much easier for us because we're a group. We're here, back on diligence and everything else. We can we can do it all here, whereas we're basically you need a partner over there to be able at least do the due diligence side. I could ask, uh, is China an emerging market or not? Because it's now becoming rather controversial. But let's not get into that right now, all right? Uh, we are running short on time, and so I do want to ask questions. Uh, quick, uh, quick, would you give me a fairly quick yes or no as to compare to a private placement, uh, sorry, a uh, crowdfunding versus a 506 Reg D? Okay, we, we will not do crowdfunding uh, deals. Uh, the answer to that part is, is no, and the reason is because the crowdfunders are unaccredited. Once you go up the line and we become responsible for that deal going forward, there's all sorts of litigation possibilities, even if we didn't make a mistake, if the mom and pop loses the underlying. So it has to be, it could be crowdfunding, but it has to be accredited, a specific class of crowdfunding as accredited investors. Charlie? There are seven kinds of crowdfunding, so I would agree with Bill that I would not invest in a non-accredited um, enterprise, but for me, crowdfunding in the other classes is a channel for deal discovery, for deal flow, and having discovered it, if the, if the legal aspects are appropriate and acceptable, I'll certainly do it. Very well. Not in my area. Not my area. Uh, we're not investing crowdfunding, no. 
it sounds like the overall answer is no. Yes, yeah, same here. However, we, we have invested in a company that is planning to do crowdfunding in terms of their pre-sales revenue generation, testing the market. Oh, that's a different All thing. All right. <laughs> We've got time for uh, any other quick comment? Well, just you don't, look like you're ready. Don't tar all seven kinds of crowdfunding with our attitudes towards one of the seven. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. It's certainly worth looking at the various types of crowdfunding. It's a very interesting structure uh, that I think is helping a lot of early stage companies, and we should recognize that. Uh, open for questions. Got one over here, too. Yes. Um, I go to their meeting every year. I'm one of their affiliates, and my fund actually has some similarities with theirs as well, although they have a bigger pocketbook. Thanks. Uh, I agree with the crowdfunding, uh, or the unaccredited crowdfunding comments, but I'm curious whether in the term sheets uh, there's provisions that specifically say that a company that you've invested in cannot in the future invest in or take... Uh, uh, crowdfunding from non-accredited investors. I haven't seen it. No, we we wouldn't be in it if we did it. It's not going to be in the term sheet that would prevent it from being from being done. So we still have the options. So we can look at the deals coming forward. The other issue with crowdfunding, you just remember, is you've got X number of investors in there. So going up the line with with us, it's the large angel group, and then you get VCs up the line. They don't want to deal on a day-to-day -day basis with with investor X calling them, seeing how the company's doing, et cetera, asking for reports X, Y, Z. They will not get into that. It has to be, if you're going to do something like that, it has to be put into one investment vehicle and it has to be in the term because otherwise the, the investors upline will not co-invest in that deal. Any other questions? Yeah, over, over here. Um, what's, this, this is for the angel investors. What's the, the average ticket of your investments? and? Uh, What's the, the biggest ticket that you, you would be able to invest in? Issue there, though, is the average, it's forming these syndicates that we see. It, it's hard for angel groups as a whole to get more, literally more than a few million dollars into any one deal. And that's what the lead inventors, the big inventors, Koretsu, us and others, involved in a deal like that. Because don't forget size-wise, again, the average angel investment nationally is 25,000. That means you get 10 investors to get to two, just to get to 250 within that one group. And it usually could be up to a six month process. So you start aggregating all this, it's just very difficult to reach those upper ends. Yes, it can be done. I mean, you, that's, a, that's a deal you just pointed out that was done, but I can point out 99%, 0.9% the other side, it won't get done at those levels. I would say with Kuritsu, for example, it's probably uh, their range is from 500,000 to uh, about 50, 15 million would probably be the normal range and occasionally some uh, much larger than that. Other questions? Yeah, right here. So I'm a peer. I've got an angel group in Charleston and then an early stage VC firm and we've got 45 portfolio companies. I have a dilemma that I could use your brain on. We, one of our companies hit lightning in a bottle, um, issued a dividend that returns almost 20% of the fund, still own all the equity, but fund is still open. Would you close it and preserve for our existing, you know, with our existing LPs or keep it open and keep raising but dilute your existing LPs? Well, I'll take it by default. Um, so some of those dividends can be used as 
royalty payments, basically. Basically, you can use those dollars to repay the principal of your investor, so you're paying it on down. Some of it can be used as an interest component beyond what you're obligated to pay. So I would keep the fund, in my view, I keep the, because you're doing so well, keep that fund open because you also don't know, you know what's going to happen subsequently. You can't predict, make the prediction that's going to continue along the life of the fund. I assume it's a 10-year fund, right? Right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your attention. Uh, please give a warm uh, thank you to our, uh, to our panelists.